everyone. Welcome back again to the One Link Podcast. I'm Brad, and I'm joined, as always, with James. How are you guys you today? Doing, I am fabulous. Good. Good to be here with you. Or I guess I'm not here with you. I'm in another place, <laughs> but good to be digitally here with you. Digitally here with you. Yeah, and we have, a, uh, I think, a return guest on the podcast, right? That's right. We brought him in about a year or so ago, and so here he is again. Zach is joining us. Good to have you here, Zach. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be back. Yeah, we're we're really excited to have you on here today. As we've talked about uh, this series on Muslims, uh, we kind of dabbled in it, and, and we really thought, you know what, what we re- what we really need to do is cover like what do Muslims actually believe, and so uh, you have a lot of experience with that, uh, as does Brad. I'm the I'm the uh, resident non-expert on it um, in spite of what you guys may think about yourselves. So we thought we'd dive in and see uh, what all we could explore today. So like, just give us, Zach, give us a brief history. Okay, sure. Well, uh, one thing I think it's, it's important to recognize was that Muhammad and Islam is the latest of the major world religions to come on the historical scene. Uh, Muhammad was born in 570 AD in Mecca, uh, in what is now Saudi Arabia. And uh, at that time, in that area, it was a very animistic society, very tribal. And, but there was some influence of Christianity as well, and some talk about monotheism as opposed to the tribal polytheism that was common there. Uh, so in his days, his, um, his father and, and mother died. Um, and so he basically was taken in by an uncle and then eventually married an older woman who he worked for. But in 610, he was 40 years old, he received his first vision, um, which happened when he was fasting in a cave in that area. And uh, that vision was what he claimed to be the angel Gabriel coming to him and telling him to recite or to proclaim what the angel was going to tell him. And of course, uh, he, that were, those were the beginnings of several visions which inspired him to come out and claim that he was a prophet of God and had a message. And his message was primarily monotheism, uh, which was not received well among many of the tribes. And so he suffered persecution early on. Uh, after certain historical circumstances, he did gain some following. And eventually, uh, a key part was he won a battle um, that basically he felt confirmed and his followers confirmed that he was a prophet and that God was with him, and they began to spread from there. So uh, that his, uh, his first message or his first revelation was in 610. Uh, he started to gain some followers slowly, but then more quickly towards the end as they began to sort of... Um, Uh, gain uh, a larger group. He died finally in 632 AD, and after him, uh, his number one man took over, and Muslim just began to continue to spread from there. Spread, of course, from that area uh, in Saudi Arabia, what is now Saudi Arabia, uh, into Africa, into even um, uh, Asia, and north, uh, even towards Europe. So that's kind of the, the brief history of that. Zach, can you give a little bit of uh, how the Quran came to be, what it is, how, you know, its uh, origins? Yeah, uh, so basically the Quran is the revelations that Muhammad received from the angel Gabriel, which he 
passed on to his friends who wrote it down. The interesting thing is that Muhammad could not read or write, and so this was seen as proof that he had received the vision because he could not write it and he could not um, you know, communicate well. Uh, so as he passed on these visions to his friends, they wrote them down, and these visions then were seen as from God himself. How long a period did this happen over? Well, it happened uh, throughout his life. Um, of course, one of the interesting things you'll find is many scholars will see a difference between earlier revelations, which were much more focused on God and much more focused on worship of God, as opposed to his later visions, which after he had some followings and was being persecuted and fighting uh, against other tribes, uh, were much more jihad-related and other types of things. They were more um, violent, you might say, and, um, and sometimes many more, much more practical about how to uh, kind of deal with those who disagreed with you. Yeah, I know I can remember uh, Muslim friends of mine talking about when they were sort of sharing of the authoritative nature of the Quran or the unique nature of the Quran, that same idea of, well, here was this, you know, illiterate man and he wrote them, so it must be it must be of God. That was kind of a, an apologetics for them, um, and then, and obviously because this was in the later uh, period after uh, Jesus, after uh, you know Judaism had been founded, there would have been Jews and Christians that Muhammad would have likely known. Uh, what role or what kind of influence did that have in your mind, Zach? Yeah, well, that, that is interesting because it is debated as to what level um, Jewish, influenced, uh, Jewish influence was on Muhammad and Christian because both were present in that part of the world. So uh, interestingly enough, he was at one point um, housed, or you might say protected, by a Christian king, uh, protected from Jews and from those that wanted to hurt him who were, uh, who were not Muslims from the area. So there is some sense that he, re he influenced uh, Muhammad to some level, but certainly there was an idea that this monotheism that Judaism and even Christianity preached um, was an influence on him. I don't think many scholars would deny that at all. Mm -hmm. Do we know what he was before he had these visions? Like, did he also follow these tribal... Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because uh, in Mecca was a big temple that was um, basically housed many idols, and it says from early on, according to history, he was very much uh, in turmoil about the worship of these idols, and as a result is why he really went to the caves and began fasting and praying to God and, and seeking to connect with God. Mm-hmm. And Zach, is it your understanding that the the Kaaba, the the sort of the center of um, that the iconic kind of mosque there in Mecca, where people do the pilgrimage and they kind of walk around that big black, uh, almost box-looking structure, that that was where that temple was? Yes, that's correct. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. What is? Because I've seen pictures. What is that black box thing? Uh, well, it, it there is different understandings about his purpose, but basically it was the temple that where the idols uh, were housed, and eventually, of course, he removed those idols and used it as a um, 
you know, a place of worship for Allah only. And so that is part of it. There's also some history that that was connected to Abraham, that perhaps even Abraham had been in that area and, and established that temple there. So interesting. I think, Zach, the other sort of soundbite that's out there or when people are curious about the history of Islam and its spread is, you know, wondering how did it spread? How did it spread so fast? Probably most people would think, well, by the sword and, and by, you know, these armies going, conquering and killing people, which uh, certainly there's history there, but um, it's probably a little more complicated than that or a little more diverse than that, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, the common idea for us is that, oh, he just threatened people and to kill them if they didn't believe. That's not exactly right. Uh, there probably was some of that, but a lot of it, again, was from a tribal culture that was based on whoever has power and whoever can protect you. So that's why in uh, Muslim culture, there's this idea that um, there are those who believe and join you and those who do not believe but uh, are protected by you. And that was sort of the category of Christians uh, for Muhammad. So in a lot of cases, there was a sense of um, they would allow people to believe what they wanted and yet they would have to pay taxes to receive his protection. So there's also a sense that when we hear that, we think, oh, okay, so, you know, <laughs> he was extorting them. Uh, yes and no. It, it, part of it, the culture was such that that was uh, very normal for them. But there's also no question that people uh, took to the message as well and saw in his rapid rise to power and, of course, after he died, even the spread was very rapid. The power of Islam as they uh, gained, you might say, strength um, in different regions was also a powerful force that people began to take notice and consider their beliefs. Why did it spread so fast? Do we know what was uh, its appeal? Yeah, well, I think the appeal was, uh, in some sense, a worship of, of uh, the one true God. And... Uh, there was also a sense of power there that these folks had numbers and they were spreading across, um, you know, the landscape. Now, of course, there was some level that uh, if you opposed them and you lost, then you would be plundered. And there was some level to appeal to new believers to join with Muhammad in these raids, you might say, because they would, in a sense, gain pillaging and plunder from the victories of those battles that they won. And as they began to gain force, they began to gain more people to the army, so to speak. So there was some of that as well. Would an, sorry, would an equivalent be, um, like with the Israelites, things aren't going so well, you've got this neighboring people group that worship this other image, things seem to go well with them, so Jews would start worshiping you know, Baal. Or Is that like a... Yeah, I think there's some, definitely some parallels there. No question about it. Um, you know, we, it's sometimes it's hard for folks to think about it from the, the historical perspective of what that culture believed, by and large, or even from tribal cultures. But yeah, there was definitely some parallels to, to the Old Testament um, and even some New Testament uh, nomadic cultures. You also hear these uh, historical anecdotes of um, places where the Christian church had become very corrupt or even uh, oppressive, and that that sort of opened the door for Islam. In fact, there's, I've even heard some story of 
you know, some Christians opening the, the gates of the city to let them in. But I'm not real familiar with the history. Would you say that was widespread or just a few kind of isolated things or somewhere in between? Oh, well, I think it's hard to, to say with any exactness, but as any case, you know, faith is, um, you know, relative to the strength of the person who believed it and to their knowledge of the scriptures themselves and whether they obeyed it or not. Um, so definitely sometimes, you know, there was sense that faith was only cultural and nominal for those who believed it. Um, and that's not uncommon in, in nomadic tribal areas. Uh, in many cases, whoever the leader of the tribe is, whatever he believes, the rest of the tribe believes too. Uh, at least that's the way it's uh, spoken of. So what, um, as, we, as we dive deeper into the, the actual beliefs of Islam, um, you guys were talking earlier about like there's an orthodox view and more of a a tribal view is that the word you use or folk folk islam definitely um yes that might be the better way to explain it mm -hmm. so what we're talking about today is is going to be the orthodox view right like if you went back and ask in mecca what do you believe this would be the most as best we understand it the most uh orthodox highest educated people these they would they would believe this, right? Correct. That's right. Uh, and, and of course, that would be based on their study of the Quran and, uh, and what it says overtly. But also the Hadiths. I think it's not, um, we shouldn't leave the idea of this other set of, um, you know, books that are not equivalent to the Quran in the sense of an errancy in their minds. But the Hadiths basically are practical explanations of the Quran by Muhammad as written down by his friends who were around him and asked him a thousand questions about how do I apply this uh, revelation, how do I apply this Quran, and then he responded uh, in a, a variety of topics. Okay, so you have, if I understand right, so you have the Quran and they view it as inerrant and then you have like essentially the Muhammad's commentary on exactly the, that's a great way to yeah. put it now right. now would Muhammad have like would he have, would he have read the Bible when he was there like do we have any uh, yeah it's 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 not clear whether or how much uh, the Bible per se was in his possession or he had knowledge of the Bible certainly there are a lot of uh, passages in the Quran and the Bible that you can say are, especially Old Testament. Of course, uh, there's no real heavy mention of New Testament uh, except for Jesus himself in the Quran. But many stories in the Quran that match up, at least in part, to Old Testament stories. So he certainly would have heard them or at least had some knowledge of them. However, their claim perhaps is that they came directly from revelation from God and not from the Old Testament or anyone who taught him those things as well. So, But Hadiths are basically his commentary on those things and an explanation of how he tried to live them out. Uh, and that's where the term sunnah uh, or sunnah is basically Muhammad's, the way Muhammad did it, and the idea that if Muslims will do it the way Muhammad did it, even though it may not be written in the Quran, they'll be blessed as a result of that. Okay. Now that sounds a lot like, is you just said sunnat? Sunnat, yeah. Sunnet. Not sure what they, uh, how they called it in uh, your area, Brad. 
but the Sunnah yeah, or Sunnah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Similar, yeah. Okay, so are we are we getting into the different divisions of Islam here? Is that kind of the uh, not, one of them? Not That's really. Okay. Sunnah, uh, the Sunnis is not quite the same as the idea of the Sunnah of Muhammad. Okay. Which it bas- Sunnah basically means that these are the ways of Muhammad, and if you were to do them, you will be blessed. Okay. They are not necessarily required to do it exactly the way he did it, but if you're in doubt. You can do it the way he did it, and you'll probably receive blessing as a result. Okay. And is Actually, this a, no, probably in their minds you will. Is this a separate set of books, or are these in the Hadith? Th- this is the idea of the Hadith and their okay. teaching. Yeah, they're okay. related. So. Okay. Sunnah might be the practices, you might say, and the sun- and Hadith are the writings of everything that was written down about what he did and his practices. So they're related. Okay. Um, and then I, I would find Zach uh, just to kind of on the Hadith topic, friends who would uh, they seem like they were because it's more uh, practical, kind of explanatory day to day than the Quran. They would almost be more um, familiar with it or even reference it more. And so I would I would kind of be trying to get to the bottom of. So do you think this is authoritative, like kind of in in. Um, in light of looking at the Quran or the the Hadith, and they would say, well, you know, the Quran obviously is the Quran, but the Hadith sort of runs parallel to it or alongside of it was the the phrase they would always use. Mm -hmm. What has your experience been with people's views of the authoritative nature of the Hadith? Yes, I think that uh, a similar concept would be from the area where I served. Obviously, dependent on the education of the people, if they were not very educated, some of them couldn't, didn't know the difference between the two. Uh, they would hear teachings from their imam in the mosque, and there was not always a differentiation that this is Quran or Hadith material. Just simply do it. And so there was oftentimes they would state things that uh, they believed were Quranic, but actually as we discussed them and I revealed to them, or I should say I showed them that, uh, actually that's not in the Quran, but the Hadith, then they're, oh, so there was always some sense of not clear. But you're right, if they did understand that these were Hadiths, they would say these are recommended, but not required, and they ran alongside to give explanation and commentary. Not unlike the Jewish idea of the uh, commentaries of the of the uh, rabbis uh, on the uh, writings of the Old Testament. Give me an idea. So the Quran, we would say, is like maybe roughly the size of the Bible, you know, plus or minus. Are there like 10 hadiths, 50 hadiths? You know, is it like <laughs> thousands upon thousands? thousands yeah, exactly. Actually. How big so of a. There uh, are literally uh, uh, potentially thousands. Uh, and, and some of them are just like short stories, and some of them are, are longer, and each one has a context. Uh, in other words, they were with Muhammad at dinner, and they saw him uh, washing his hands, and they said, oh, well, why do you do it that way? And he said, uh, no no reason, but if you do, you know, so there was a sense that, oh, I'll do it that way too, and so I will, I will follow the example of the prophet. But uh, the Quran itself is really only about as long as the New Testament, and so I always encourage folks who are interested in working with Muslims to read it. Uh, it's it's not uh, too long that it would be, uh, you know, be a challenge to do so, um, but it gives you an idea uh, of the nature of it. Um, very poetic, 
very, it's probably more like a Psalms, you might say, in its nature, though with some narrative to it. But if you're going to be interested in working with Muslims, I'd encourage you to read some of it. Yeah, I think that would probably be good. And that would make you actually, in, in a lot of cases, you would have read more than they would have at that point. Yeah. <laughs> so in some cases, yes. In some cases. Uh, but uh, again, it's one of those things where it, it, it'd be difficult to talk to a Muslim um, uh, if you didn't have sort of an idea of some of the things that are taught in the Quran and at least get a feel for it. And I think most people, when they read it, um, they will recognize, oh, it, it has a very different style and feel to it than uh, much of the Bible, and especially much of the Quran, or uh, sorry, the New Testament. Uh, there's not a lot of narrative in it, so that's, that's why a lot of people find it difficult. Um, it's kind of like wisdom literature, you might say. Um, so that's, there's some differences in it. And even the stories that are from the Old Testament, they're extremely abbreviated. So you can't really get the full picture from only reading the Quran about Abraham or Moses or, or some of those Old Testament stories. Okay. What about, I want to ask some more questions uh, about the Quran, about Muhammad. Uh, y'all had mentioned at the beginning just kind of the demographics of Islam. What did y'all mean by that? Yeah, I think I, I referenced that. Um, I will sometimes hear uh, people in America say, well, is, is that man an Arab? And what they mean to say, is he Muslim? And so there's kind of because, um, you know, Arabs are maybe the most high profile uh, ethnic group among Muslims. There's uh, some confusion that those are the same thing, Arab and Muslim. But actually, Arabs would be the minority ethnically in uh in the muslim world and your old neck of the woods in south asia is where you get large large numbers of muslims so um uh, maybe you can since you're you're from that area you worked in that area zach maybe you can share a little bit about that yeah and that's the interesting thing about the historical spread of islam as it spread into africa um it took on its own african feel of it and as it spread into asia uh, especially as it interacted with um, Hindus in India and South Asia, they began to add a different flair to it and began to syncretize with local beliefs. So, but the interesting thing is that because Muhammad was Arab and because it began in Arabia, the Arabian language, or I should say the Arabic language and the Arabian culture are very strongly connected to Islam such that anyone who is a Muslim who does not live in that area feels that that is like the Holy Land, you might say. That is like heaven. In fact, Muslims will say that Arabic is the language of heaven. It is spoken in heaven, and therefore um, we all should, should speak it. Most Muslims do not speak Arabic, but they recognize that um, Islam claims you should not read the Quran unless you read it in Arabic because it is the language of heaven. In the same way, because Muhammad was Arab and he, we are to follow his example, this is why you see Arab culture in terms of dress, in terms of uh, food, in terms of other types of things, even in areas well, far, from, far from Arabia because there is a sense that even Arabic culture is um, special because Muslim or uh, Muhammad was uh, Arab. Yeah, that's a really uh, just kind of interesting the Arab cultural influence. I mean, I worked with the people group that was very far away from the Arab world and was Turkic ethnically, 
but they named all their kids, you know, Arabic names and all the real, any kind of religious term, prayer, um, God, anything like that was, was all Arabic. So uh, it is very interesting. I was just looking uh, up. I mean, Indonesia is the largest Muslim popular country, uh, which is obviously not Arabic. And then you have those three South Asian, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh are kind of two, three, four. And um, I think it doesn't get to about six. You get Egypt. That's the sort of the first uh, Arab country on there. So there's a lot of, as you said, non-Arab groups, but that Arab influence and culture and, and kind of association with pure Islam is, is pretty strong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that only gets stronger if people will go on the Hajj, because when they go to the Hajj, which is the pinnacle of most Muslims' life, if they are able to do so, then they're steeped in that Arabic environment and culture and history such that it really connects them very strongly to the culture and to the language, and really they come back very excited to learn Arabic and read the Quran in Arabic and dress Arabic, and in any says. Uh, to demonstrate themselves as more orthodox after Hajj. I don't know if you've seen that in your place, uh, Brad. Yes. Yes, I think there there was a... I mean, sometimes it felt a bit showy, almost. Suddenly they were wearing different clothes that were not not the, you know, uh, ethnic style, mm-hmm. but were Arabic. And every sentence they said was, well, you know, when I was on the Hajj, <laughs> such and such happened. So there was a... A real identity change for people yeah. because of that, yeah. And it's similar to Christians going to Israel. Um, if they go to Israel, they're like, wow, that was such a great experience. And I feel like I walked where Jesus walked. And I, I, I you know, so there's a sense that it, it is a strong builder of faith uh, to go on pilgrimage. And, um, and of course, those that come back from Hajj to their homes, then they become the the authorities on what is uh, holy, and and they become the good Muslim that is concerned with pointing out others who are not following Islam as well, and they become sort of the, uh, you might say, the the big wigs in their communities. Okay, and let me let me back you guys up. So the Hajj is one of the five five pillars of Islam, right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So what's uh, let's let's talk about the five pillars. While we're on the Hajj, how long? How long? Did, it's a trip to Mecca, right? Mm-hmm. Is it a certain time right. of year, or can I go any time if I'm a Muslim? How long do I go for? What do I do? Yes, it is a very. Um, there is a schedule for it. Now, the Muslim culture runs by the lunar calendar, so uh, it typically shifts some. Uh, at least some, but I think the Hajj might even be fixed. I'm trying to remember. Uh, I guess I, I shouldn't speak about what I'm not confident about, but uh, there is a strict schedule for it. Uh, it happens once a year. People travel to it, and then they go through all the routines together. It's a very uniting experience from my understanding. Uh, everybody is stripped of culture, of their background, of, and they are all one in the same type of uh, humble worship of God in that area. And so, so yes, it's, uh, it's a very regimented thing. In fact, Saudi Arabia has had to make drastic, um, how do you want to say, adjustments to how to handle so many hajis coming, uh, that they actually have two periods of hajj, I'm understood to believe now, to handle all of them. How long does it last, roughly? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I'm trying to remember. It's not more than uh, uh, a few weeks. It, I think it's really one uh, one week maximum, something in that nature. It's not long at all. So, um, but yes, that's uh, they've had to accommodate so many by adding a second period of Hajj to to it, even though technically um, it's fixed based on uh, the lunar calendar. I'm I'm just you know I had to get to Google to give me a little help here, Zach. Go ahead. Um, so the um, you know as when you kind of start to hear these news clips about it, people are going and they do a certain thing here, and there's sort of stations to it. And so to kind of walk through all those stations, the things you mm -hmm. visit and that you do is five days. It takes five days to complete. So good, good, yeah. So and of course. They fly in, they get settled, they have to house them, they clo they're clothed a specific way, men and women do things together, and uh, the, every aspect of it is symbolic uh, of history of Muhammad and, uh, and the growth of Islam in that area. A lot of symbolism. Um, and so it's, yeah, I've seen pictures and I've seen videos of it. It's very fascinating. So what? Uh, so that's one of the pillars. What are the other four pillars? What are the pillars? Yeah, I think you pegged me for that one. So of course, there's the uh, confession that you have to make as a Muslim. Uh, there's no god but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. So you would uh, you'd have to both believe that, and there's sort of a confessing of that, saying that. Now on that, uh, do Muslims worship Muhammad? Um, how do they view him, maybe compared to how we view Jesus? Yeah, they certainly wouldn't have the view of him as uh, divine, you know, the uh, equal with God in any way. That's In fact, that there's no God but Allah is a very uh, key sort of monotheistic rejection of, the, of Trinity or of Jesus, the spirit being uh, equal in any way to God. So they would just say Muhammad is, prof is the prophet of God, uh, messenger, but they would not give any sort of divine authority to him in that way or divine identity, maybe I should say. So no worship, but extreme revering. Yeah. I mean, as Zach was talking about earlier, his ways, how he did it, uh, his teachings, the, those kind of things. Um, and obviously he was the one that the, the Quran was given to. So venerated in that way, but not uh, worship. Certainly no. The concept of prophet in Islam is different as well. Um, I'll just say as an addendum, the concept of prophet in Islam is in many cases sinless in their minds. They don't commit sin. They don't commit things. They don't have sinful um, actions in any way. And, and that is why part in part that God has chosen them as prophets. Um, so even though they wouldn't be considered, um, uh, you know, divine in the sense, they are sinless. So... And I would find maybe you can uh, share if this was universally or if you, you saw this as well, Zach, but um, that they would use this term for sort of any of those Old Testament characters, even people we wouldn't necessarily call prophets like David or Solomon. Uh, they all kind of got that that label or the the honorifics, the the titles that went with that. They didn't seem to be a distinction. Has that been your experience? Yeah, that's correct. Um in the prophets in the Quran, there are many of the same ones that are Old Testament uh, 
prophets and but also David King, you know, he was not considered a prophet, so to speak. But there are also prophets mentioned in the Quran that we have no idea who they are or where they're from. The Muslims say that they were prophets from the Arab Peninsula, which of course we have no history on except in the Quran, which is interesting. So what's the next pillar? Uh, so the confession, then we just talked about the pilgrimage to Mecca or the Hajj, uh, doing that at least once in your life, um, giving alms, so giving uh, money to the poor would, would be the next one, uh, praying five times a day, doing, uh, doing that ritual, and then, uh, of course, fasting during Ramadan would be the fifth one. When they pray, someone asked me this the other day, and I didn't know, when they pray, uh, is it always like the exact same words? Do they do they pray like we pray and like pray for what you what you need? Um, how does that work out as a Muslim? Yeah, highly ritualistic. Go ahead, Zach. I think you probably no, it's okay. Have a better um, feel. No, they when they are praying during their prescribed five times of the day. Yes, it is uh, extremely ritualistic, and it's the same almost the same every day and at every period. Each period is a bit different, but they have routines and they follow the imam as he leads them through the routines. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have other prayers. They have personal forms of prayers that they can pray at any time of the day uh, in any place. There is that. Uh, but most Muslims, by and large, when they think of prayer, they think of the ritualistic five times prayer that they're doing in the mosque. And of course, they don't have to do it in the mosque, but it, you have uh, receive a greater blessing is the idea if it is done in the mosque. So, okay. And if I pray, do I have to? Do I always use my prayer rug? Do I always bow down? Yeah, you basically follow the physical routine, the script, you might say. Um, and, you know, it's very liturgical, you might say, like older Christian churches have this traditions that we do it this way, and, and they have those things as well. And, and a lot of those are taken from the example of Muhammad or how Muhammad said that they should pray, not prescribed in the Quran as such. So, but yes, usually the mosques themselves, they have prayer rugs. You don't need to take your own, but a prayer rug is for your personal role if you do it outside uh, the mosque or at home those types of things. And of course, always to pray towards Mecca in the direction of Mecca. Yeah. Whereas we would, I, th I think we would say as Christians, you know, the, it, the meaning behind or the purpose behind it is what matters, not the, not the form or the posture. Like when we say it's time to pray, I mean, you could bow your head, you could kind of put your head on your shoulder, you, you know, you, what, you could do whatever you want to do in particularly evangelical circles, I guess I should say, but they're like those, specific postures and bending and things those have uh, religious meaning in fact i even had a friend who he said when you pray make sure your hand they would kind of cup their hands and almost like they're sort of catching water say so make sure that they're together and there's no gap or you know the blessing mm -hmm. might fall right through now i don't know how uh widely that's believed but just kind of shows that idea of those things really are important to them yeah, and the bowing and the bending down is just really interesting to symbolize the humility they have before Almighty God. And, and of course, uh, we used to have those in old churches as well. There was a, a kneeling pew that would fold out. I've seen some old churches, and uh, uh, or even just the idea of getting on your face, prostrate, uh, prostrate, excuse me, prostrate before God uh, in humility is is kind of the idea behind some of that ritual. 
And they, do they fully prostrate themselves or just like head down to the ground? Uh, yeah, more of bending at the waist and, uh, and putting their head on the ground. That's absolutely true. In fact, at least where I lived, um, if you had a mark on your forehead, that was a sign that you were a very devout Muslim because you had prayed and touched your forehead to the ground so many times in prayer to Allah. So that was interesting. Whether that was man-made mark <laughs> or whether that was actually due to prayer is, was always a question, but it indicated your devotion. Thanks, Zach. Uh, we really appreciate you sharing with us. You know, there's so many things about what Muslims believe. I think we're going to extend this into one more podcast, and we'll have you back on the next episode. Listeners, we really appreciate you guys listening, and we love any feedback that you have to give us. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about what we do, if you're not familiar with us, you can visit us at onelinkinternational.org, or if you'd like to contact us, if you go to the bottom of onelinkinternational.org, there's the office phone number and contact information. I would always love to your feedback and get in touch with you. Thanks. See you next time.